Ever wonder how to get someone to pay $7,500 for your work instead of $75? Or maybe on the flip side, how to attract people to a movement and get them to take action that has nothing to do with actually buying something from you. Either way, what are the most underutilized channels and tactics content creators can use these days to accomplish your goals? Well, you're about to find out. Welcome to the I Wanna Know podcast. My guest today is James Ellis, and that's what he wants to know. James is obsessed with using employer branding to make hiring better for recruiters, hiring managers, and candidates. He's written three books on the subject, including Talent Chooses You, which has been referred to as the new Bible of the industry, the Change Agent Newsletter, and is about to launch his third podcast, The Definition of Insanity. He lives in Chicago, which automatically means that he's a good guy, and is always on LinkedIn. Hey, James, welcome to the show. Hey, Josh, I am thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I am excited to have you, and we will jump right into it, because before we hopped on, James called me out on a truth as I was explaining to him that we'll spend about 10 minutes talking about each question, and James was like, you've never spent 10 minutes talking about anything, so... I, I flat out called you a liar. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good, He's he's got it. That's how I know someone's a listener to the show. They call me on my bullshit. Nice. Cool. So let because I'm sure I will ramble, let's get right into it. What is the first thing you want to know? Well, better you rambling than me. I think that everybody agrees on that. <laughs> so I'm working under this assumption and I'm it, it received knowledge, I think more than anything else, that it takes a lot more work, a lot more convincing to get someone to pay you, let's call it $7,500 for a course than a $75 course. And I know you sell 50 and low cost, easy entry point classes, but is there a rule of thumb to how much more information is necessary to get someone to take an action at a bigger price point? Is it exponential? Is it just, oh, it's just twice as much? Or is like any kind of rules of that? Because it feels to me like I know how to sell. I know why you should take that class regardless of the price point. And I'm going to say it the same way. But if the first part is true, then I'm doing something wrong. So how can you help me out here? I love this question because I, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is I know pricing is so tricky to people and it's definitely as much an art as it is a science. And I think it's something that people really struggle with on both ends. People that are like, well, I'm never going to charge a low price, right? I'm going to charge a lot because I'm valuable and I'm worth it and blah, blah, blah. And then you see in more cases, people go the other way where they're so insecure they're so worried about not getting sales. Almost everybody undercharges. I can't remember where I heard this, but it was somebody who had said just right off the bat, no matter what, you should always be a little uncomfortable with what you charge. Yep. So charge a little higher, bump your prices up 10% regularly, do whatever, but get at, if you're comfortable with what you're charging, you're probably charging too little. So with that said, though, I think what's obviously the, the core of your question here is what's the difference between approaching selling a higher end product versus a lower end product? And one of the reasons I love your question is because I disagree with the premise right, up, right off the bat on a bunch of levels. So the first thing is, I think you, I think you made reference to the idea of, does it take more convincing to some, for someone to buy a $7,500 or $75 course? And the first thing I want to say is no matter what you're charging, your job is not to convince anyone of anything. So I think this is such a common mindset that people think selling is convincing. And I think selling is making the people that are going to benefit from your product aware that it exists, aware of how it's going to help them, aware that it's the solution to their problem. When you start talking about convincing, and not just you, I think tons of people do this, right? They think that selling is, when you're talking about convincing, you're talking about taking someone who it's not the right thing for 
and trying to convince them that it is. So you should be, and this goes into the very beginning stages of creating products. You should be creating things that you don't need to convince people. You should be creating things that are solutions to problems that people have. You also see this where people are sometimes trying to convince people that they have a problem. Bad idea. Yes, theoretically, you can do that, but you're making life way harder on yourself and it's probably not going to work. Go for the people that know they have a problem or actively seeking a solution to that problem, as opposed to going to the person and saying, no, 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 you really need this. Trust me, you have this problem. So that's that's the first thing. Your job is not to convince anyone of anything. The next thing to understand is the person that buys the $7,500 product is a completely different person than the one who buys a $75 product. So understanding that those are actually two different markets, as opposed to how do, what do I need to say to this person to get them to spend $7,500 versus getting them to spend 75. The person that's going to spend $7,500, yeah, they might buy a $75 product, but most likely they're not because they're looking for or expecting a certain level of something. They have a, at least in their own minds, they have a $7,500 problem. Yeah. They don't, that's what they're looking for. So when you understand that, that it's actually about, are you attracting the right people versus I'm attracting someone and now I'm going to convince them or what do I have to do differently? The truth is that your, and I'll get into this in a second, but the, the, the volume of your pitch, the frequency, the whatever doesn't need to be different because it's two different products for two different people. And by the way, if you have multiple products, you have a $75 product and a $7,500 product. That's fine. What it's actually allowing you to do is address two different audiences. Yeah. So I, and I'm going to, I'm not going to, I, I yeah. hate to quote you to you, but you, in a previous episode, you talked about your ladders and how you, you have, you should 10X each step of the, each rung mm -hmm. of the ladder and that all of those rungs effectively serve or solve the same problem, but for different audiences. Mm -hmm. So if we add what you just said to what you pre said previously, yeah. does that mean my sales page or how someone should present this is all about here's the problem that you're solving and here's the many ways it gets solved? Or is it, do I see them as disparate programs? I'm going to say, it's a great question. I'm going to say a combination of the two. So the, the value ladder, which I'm glad you brought that up. So for anyone that hasn't heard when I talked about that before, the value ladder is basically, if you're going to have multiple products and services, essentially you're going to have, this is roughly, but you may have a 10X difference between each one. So you might have a $75 product, a $750 product, a $7,500 product. They're all addressing the same problem, but doing so in different ways. So usually a different level of service. The person that's, well, just give me some quick information is different than the person that wants you to actually do it for them or that kind of thing. So I don't think that you need, but the, the reason you're doing that, right? The reason to have multiple products at multiple price points in the first place is so you can address different buyers. Yeah. Yes, there will be some people that work their way up the scale. Some people might buy the $75 one and then they might go, oh, I want more help. And then they buy the 751 and then they want the bigger thing, whatever. But the vast majority of people are going to come in at whatever price point it is they want, right? The person that wants you to do it for them is very different than the person that wants you to just tell them what to do. The person that's, I just want to watch a video where you present to me how to do something is very different than the person that's, I want the accountability of a weekly call or whatever. The person that wants this sort of, custom advice to their situation is different than the person that wants the general advice of how you do something. It's rare that people are going to work their way up. It happens, but more often than not, they're going to come in at sort of where they want to be. So from a sales page perspective, it's fine to have all those offers on one page, as long as you're being clear about 
what each one is for and the differentiation point. If you're looking for one-on-one whatever, this is the option for you. If you're looking for just the information, show me how to do it, this is the option for you. If you're looking for X, Y, Z, right? What the problems they're solving, they're same. The way that they're being solved is different. And that's where it's going to, that's where it's going to match. The other thing is potentially on your sales page, you may or may not have price points. So that's the other thing where it's important to, if you don't have price points, make it clear. These are the differentiations. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to say here, this kind of goes back to what I was saying is that the, the amount of information doesn't determine whether or not someone takes action. So you don't need quote unquote more to sell an expensive product than you do a lesser product. It's the clarity of the information that does. I'll give you an example where you don't need a lot of information. You just need it to be really clear. I could sell you a $100,000 product in a single sentence. If that sentence was, if you buy this for $100,000, I'll give you $200,000 in cash right now, guaranteed. Right? Now, I know that's like an exaggerated, hypothetical, ridiculous, but the, the core point is if the offer is strong enough and the value is clear enough, you don't need a 12 email sales funnel to get them to buy a $100,000 product. You just need an offer that is really, really strong. So that's what I mean, the clarity and strength of the offer, not the volume of information. Now that is an exaggerated example. But it works, but it makes sense. No, I, it, it, yeah. showing that value and, and defining the value in such crystal ter- clear terms is, right. is helpful. That Yeah, I completely got to get that. Yeah. So once you understand that, that leads to the real question here, which is not how much information do you need? The real question is how do you generate that clarity, value, and trust? How do you do that? Because you do need probably certainly more value to sell a $7,500 product. It has to provide more value than to sell a $75 product and the clarity of it and the trust. So I put together five keys to selling a high-end product. This is how you develop that clarity, value, and trust. Five keys to selling a high-end product. The first one is you need to create a product that delivers a high-end return. Price is a function of value created. There's a huge value difference between showing people how to sell eBooks and showing them how to sell homes. Hard to charge $7,500 to show someone how to sell eBooks unless they're going to definitely sell more than $7,500 worth of eBooks. Much easier to charge $7,500 to show people how to sell a home where they're going to make significantly more. So create a product that delivers a high-end return. The second thing is you want to get clear on what customers are buying and what they value, especially the higher end you go, the more clear it needs to be. Are they paying to save time and money or to earn time and money? Are you offering a done-for-you service or are you teaching people how to do something themselves so that they don't need to pay someone else to do it for them? You need alignment between whatever it is you're selling, who you're selling it to, and how you message its value. A lot of times you'll see one of those pieces aren't aligned and that makes it tougher. Again, the higher the price point, the more important that clarity and alignment is that you're clear on that this is what they value, this is what I'm selling them. The third key to selling a high-end product is you need to attract a high-end audience. So I see a lot of people that are selling high-end products or trying to sell high-end products to an audience that can't afford it or isn't interested or isn't the $7,500 buyer, they're the $75 buyer. So for example, if you want to sell a high-end job search product, you can charge more for a job search product aimed at currently employed CEOs than one aimed at the unemployed. Huge difference. But you'll see people all the time that are like, I've got a product to help people get jobs and I'm aiming it at people that have no money. Uphill battle. The fourth key to selling a high-end product, make the value 
obvious, communicated in a way that's impossible to miss. And I think it's really important to let potential buyers see or experience the product, share excerpts, show them, again, it depends what the product is, but share excerpts, give them, figure out a way to give them a small win before they even buy, where they go, oh, I did this thing. I read this sample chapter. I watched this sample video. I had a 15 minute call, by the way, this podcast. So people that are interested in my consulting can watch this podcast and go, huh, okay, I see what I see. Hopefully I see what I might get out of that. And that makes the value more obvious as opposed to them wondering, well, I don't know, what am I going to, is he really going to be helpful to me or how does he approach things? So make the value obvious. And then the fifth key here to selling a high-end product is you need to build trust. There's a lot of ways to do this. You can leverage social proof. You can leverage guarantees anything you can do to remove risk. So one of the things that I like to suggest, and again, this is true with all sales, but the higher end the price goes, the more important it is. Remove every possible reason your high-end audience might not buy. So literally make a list of them. And by the way, because you're attracting high-end buyers, that reason is rarely going to be related to price. So lots of people think, oh, they're not going to buy because $7,500 or whatever is they think it's too expensive. Well, you're attracting $7,500 buyers. So it's not going to be the price that scares them off. Mm-hmm. It's going to be all the other stuff. Yeah. And so those are the things that you need to counter in your, in your sales copy, in your messaging, in your creation of the product, in your, when you're sharing social proof or testimonials, they should be speaking to those things. And that's ultimately how you build trust and, and get more high-end sales. Any questions about any of that? Obviously, it's a digestion process. And yeah. the biggest challenge is, of course, seeing your own stuff and saying, I'm sure I do that. And, and I have to take a beat, look at my own stuff with your list in mind and say, am I actually mm-hmm. doing that? I thought that's going to be the biggest challenge for me. But no, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And when we publish this, I'll share, we'll put a link in the show notes. I had posted a tweet recently that is literally... I I sat down, it's funny, in in light of this, I had done this before, but it's exactly what we're talking about. I sat down and I was like, what is every potential reason that someone doesn't buy something? And I came up with a list of 10 reasons why people don't buy. And that's it. I, I genuinely believe any reason anyone doesn't buy anything falls into one of those 10 categories. And since I'm mentioning it, I might as well pull it up and read it. So hold on, because I actually just posted it the other day. Okay, here we go. So there are only 10 reasons people don't buy, and here they are. If you counter all these 10s, I guarantee you, you make sales. So number one, they don't understand the offer. Number two, they don't want the promised result. They're the wrong person. Number three, they literally can't afford it. I don't mean that they say they can't afford it. They literally can't afford it. Number four, they don't think it's worth it. This is really important. They can't afford it, and they don't think it's worth it are two different things. Yep. Need to counter both of them. They don't, if they can't afford it, you're attracting the wrong people. If they don't think it's worth it, you're doing a bad job explaining the value. Number five, they don't think it will work for their unique situation. Number six, they think it sounds hard. Sometimes people just don't want to do what it takes to get the result. Number seven, they don't trust what you say. That goes into trust that we talked about. Number eight, they don't know which option to buy. So you're offering multiple things and they get paralyzed between, I'm not sure, they all sound good, where should I go? So you haven't differentiated enough the different options. Number nine, it's a pain in the ass to actually purchase. You've somehow created a lot of friction, a lot of hoops for them to jump through. And how many times you see this, especially with like courses and stuff that we're going to buy where it's like, I don't know, I got to go get my credit card and I, I'll, I'll do it later, whatever. 
And then number 10, they don't have a reason to buy now. Urgency. There are so many things that there are so many times that people are like, oh, I want to get that, but I'll get it later. There, there's no there's no incentive for them to do it right now. If you counter those 10 objections, you're going to make sales. It's that simple. That's helpful. Not easy, but well, simple. Yeah, that's, that's nothing is easy, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. So let's, let's jump to your second question. What is the next thing you want to know? So obviously I'm, I've been listening and a lot of people who write in, and in fact, the last question we just talked about was very, what I would refer to as transactional. Buy a mm -hmm. thing, subscribe for a thing, very transactional. So does the advice change if it's less transactional? If you're really not trying to get people to take an action, but really trying to change a behavior, change a mind. I think of it as mm -hmm. how do you create a following? How do you get people to change Maybe not their belief system that seems a little bigger than what anybody can mm -hmm. do here, but does the advice in terms of how do you reach out to people, how do you engage them, the value you're offering, does that change when it's not transactional? Yeah, it's a great question. I think just to, to clarify, when you say following, what you don't mean, how do I get more social media followers? No. You mean, how do I build a movement as opposed to selling a product, right? How do I attract and get people to rally around a cause or something to take an action. And it's a great question. And, and you're right. We probably haven't talked about it enough on this podcast because people tend to talk about the business stuff, but this is, you know, just as important and arguably more. So I'm curious before I get into some suggestions, when you ask this, is there a specific movement or anything in particular that you're trying to build or thinking about? Yeah. So you mentioned in the bio that I'm an employer branding and everybody who listened went, I don't know what that is. And they immediately just <laughs> skipped past it. So employer brand is how do you promote and talk about and position companies to potential employees? So yeah, you know why you buy a pair of Nikes, but why do you work at Nike? And that's a different conversation. If you do it right, it lines up with the consumer and the corporate and the investor and the employer brands all kind of line up. Okay. The problem is if I were to survey everybody listening and I said, do you like the way hiring and interviewing and recruiting works? They'd all say no. Like nobody likes this process. And I mm -hmm. think employer brand is the way you move the process, you change expectations, how you look for jobs, how you look for candidates, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Employer brand is that movement. And it's relegated to, it's expensive. It's only big companies do it. And I'm trying to get people to say it's every single company can and should be using this thought process to change so they can hire the best possible people. So that's the movement I have in my mind when I ask that question. Okay. Great. And so the end result, the end value for them, there's multiple values probably, but a big part of it is they want the best people to want to work for them. Yes. So that's what a cheaper, all that stuff. That's what a win looks like. So that's awesome. So one of the things that I want to say as relates to that is all of the advice that I give for sales of products, of buying, all the transactional advice applies to this, to a movement, but the transaction is different. So if these companies, I'm not looking for them to buy something from me. I'm looking for them to want to work for me. So the quote unquote sale is a good person applying for a job at my company. So you can adapt almost any sales advice. That's the transaction in this scenario. And to extrapolate from that, with any sort of movement, there is typically some sort of action that at the end of the day, you want people to take. So if it's a movement about saving the environment, there is an action you want them to take or multiple actions. I want them to recycle. I want them to use less water. I want them to do whatever, right? Those are transactions. They're just not the typical financial transaction that you think about. So any advice you ever hear about transactional sales, marketing, any of that stuff from me or other people can be applied 
to a movement, to a thing, as long as you identify what the transaction is you want people to make and adapt it for that. So the same way we could talk about, I might give advice about here's how to create a sales page. All that advice is the same. It's just that the transaction isn't buy this, it's do this thing. It's vote for this candidate. It's sign this petition. It's do whatever it is. It's join this community. It's pledge your time. It's whatever it is. That's the first thing is that a lot of that stuff may be more relevant than it seems on the surface if you can identify what the transaction that the movement is designed to make. And, and so some movements are about rallying support. Like part of what you want to do is you want to change people's minds or open their mind to what they're, the importance New possibilities. of possibilities. Really, I think of it that way, yeah. But the way to open their mind is to pitch the end result. So you'll see, I see this all the time where it's like, your, your goal is not to convince them that employee branding matters. Your goal is to say, do you want better applicants? Yeah, yeah. Do you want a more, fit? oh, you do? Here's a way to get it. So it's secondary. You're pitching them the thing that you know that they want and then saying, this is the method to get it. It's reversing that thought process. And I think that's true with a lot of movements. You identify the thing that those people want and then explain that this movement, this, this approach, this is a way to get it. So as far as movements in general, like some other, other stuff here. So first of all, two books I highly recommend about building movements and communities and all that kind of stuff. One is the book I probably recommend the most of anything, which is Tribes by Seth Godin. That's a great one. Fantastic book. The other one is called Get Together by Bailey Richardson, Kai Elmer, Soto, and Kevin Poon. It is all about basically the building of movements and communities. Fantastic book. And they use all sorts of examples, most of which have nothing to do with money. So it's, and they talk about how those communities come together. So I strongly recommend both of those books. The next thing, when it comes to, to a movement, I think, and this is really important too, and gets into a little bit of what I was talking about a second ago. It's important to understand, is the goal really to change people's minds or is it to attract people who believe a certain thing and help them act on that belief? And those lines can blur a yeah. little bit, but it's an important distinction to make. If your goal is to change people's minds, much more of an uphill climb. Not that it can't be done, but much more of an uphill climb. So if you're, if ultimately you're trying to attract business, clients, whatever, that kind of stuff, my advice typically would be to start with the people that have that belief, right? Yeah. Now, this ties into what we were saying before. They don't necessarily need to be all about employee branding, but they need to, I want better applicants. Because the truth is there are some companies out there that think our hiring process is fine. That's Our applicants are fine. Yeah, they, it's the way right. they've been doing this for 60 years. They think, okay. So even if it's not the people that know or believe in employee branding yet, you do want the people that are like, I want to improve my hiring process or I want more. Like they believe there's some piece of what you're doing that they already believe as opposed to trying to change. You don't want to have to go to people and be like, your hiring process is broken when they don't think it is. You can, but that's there's going to be enough people out there that have at least considered, I wonder if we could do this better. I wonder if there's a better way. So that's typically what you want to do. And it's just important to understand that those are really two different things. Trying to change people and alert them that, hey, you have a problem is really different than the person's, maybe I have a problem. I wonder if there's a better way to do this, right? That gives you a massive head start. 
So, and I want to apologize for throwing a wrinkle in here, but I think it's yeah. an interesting idea and I want to take it one step further. Yeah. So in my Please world, do. it's easy to buy a tool and glob it on your system and saying, we're better. It's more efficient. It's an, you stick mm -hmm. it up bot on a chat bot, an AI, whatever. There's a million ways to mm -hmm. do it. I want them to think more strategically, which seems like a slightly different proposal. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a different pitch. So if everybody thinks, okay, we all want that thing, which is better hiring and there's an easy mm -hmm. fix for it, but it doesn't quite work. How do I get past that and say, you need think in a different way that feels whereas a tool is so easy to it's tangible it's it, it's obvious mm -hmm. right an idea is harder to sell and that's really where my i feel like i'm i because I, I, I think what you said yeah. makes a lot of sense so how do you get to the idea of it a little bit more you're not selling the idea you're selling the result okay so if i were to say to you and this is probably a good exercise for you to do right so if, if one of the problems you run into is people go, okay, I wanted to have a more efficient hiring practice, whatever. I'll just put on this chat bot. You could probably sit down and make a list of reasons of why employee branding and what you're pitching is stronger than a chat bot. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to do. So for example, if it's funny, cause I, I say this to my wife all the time. So my wife sells ads for the New York times and she sells them to movie studios. So her clients buy ads from her. They buy a lot of stuff. They buy ads on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and whatever in the New York Times, right? So one of the things that, I, that I've always said is knowing that when she goes to sell, instead of not talking about any of that stuff and just talking about how great the New York Times is, go in and address it right off the bat. Go in and go, here's the deal. I understand that Facebook ads and Instagram ads are cheaper, but I also know that a third or more of what you're paying for are people that don't exist. And I also know that the New York Times brand means something. And I also know, go in directly with that comparison and understand that, especially in that example, and probably in your example, there's a difference between getting people to spend new money and getting people to spend money they have in their budget differently. Yes, yes. So if you're getting people to spend, you're not going in and saying, I need you to come up with new money. You're going in and saying, the money, you're committed to spend X amount. You're going to spend $100,000. I'm making this up. You're going to spend $100,000 on improving your hiring practice or whatever it is. Here's your options. You can spend $100,000 on this chat bot and these ads and these whatever, and you're going to get X, Y, and Z. I'm making the case that this is a stronger approach that's going to get you better results. Yep. That's really different than asking for new money. So like when I say to her, these movie studios, they have marketing budgets that they have to spend. So the argument should not be, here's why, should not just be, here's why you should spend with me. It should be, here's why that money that you're going to spend is better spent with me than these other things. Yeah. Here's the difference. And again, there's a lot of angles to this. But back in the day, one of the things, and she didn't do this, I don't think, but one of the things I had said is if I was in that role, I would go in and go, you're a media buyer for a studio. You're controlling all this budget. Here's all the reasons why buying the New York Times is going to get you more of your end result, which is get people to see your movie or whatever it is than buying Facebook. And oh, by the way, several years ago when Facebook election interference and there was all sorts of stuff, your money is supporting journalism or it's supporting all this other stuff because individuals buy at the end of the day. Yeah. So again, this is not necessarily relevant in all cases, but I think identifying those things and going, there's that person, especially in those times when everything was chaotic and everything was politicized and everything was whatever. There were people in those media buying roles who were going, this doesn't actually cost me anything because it's not my money. And I'm convinced that let's say it's going to be equally effective. Here's my opportunity to support real journalism 
as opposed to nonsense. And so I think understanding that, right, coming in and not just saying, here's why my stuff is great, but here's the comparison and here's why. And understanding also that for some people, it may not be best and they're not going or they're not going to buy that. They want the chatbot. But for some people, it's going to be a much clearer argument. Yeah. So I think not being afraid to do the, the comparison. A couple other things about movements. So one is, we'll put a link in the show notes. There is a fantastic Derek Sivers TED Talk on how to start a movement. It's, it's very short and it's fun and whatever. And there's a couple of lines in there I'll just quote here. But again, go to the show notes and definitely go watch that. He has one line where he says, the first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader, which is a great line and important to understand that if you're starting a movement, it's not about the masses. Get a couple people and it grows from there. And then along those lines, he says, nurture your first few followers as equals. So it's clearly about a movement and not about you. I think that can be really helpful to understand that you're not just selling you. And you can even say to people, which also builds trust, you can be like, look, I can help you do this. But even if you don't hire me, here's some recommendations for you. Don't ignore this. And that builds trust and it makes them feel like, oh, this guy's not just, he's an evangelist for this bigger idea. He's not just trying to, to get my money. So, okay, so last thing here is, I came up with a list of five things you can do to build a movement, to give you momentum. So the first one is you want to pick a clear, easy to understand, measurable, shared goal that people can rally around and try to get as specific as you can. There's a huge difference between rallying people and saying, let's plant 10,000 trees is much stronger than let's plant trees. So try to come up with something that you can get rally people to that cause. The second one is build the movement around a concept that people want to be true. And I think this is really important. You see this with lots of the titles and concepts of lots of best-selling books. So the four-hour work week by Tim Ferriss launched a movement because people wanted to believe it was possible. They wanted to believe that that was true. I Will Teach You to Be Rich by Ramit Sethi was a hit in part because people want to believe that wealth can be a learned skill. Not everybody, but some people, the right people are going to be attracted to that. And those ideas that people want to be true are the kind of ideas that people will be attracted to and will rally around. So how do you frame that thing? Yeah, there's going to be some people that don't buy into the fact that employee branding is important, but they're not your people. Yeah. The ones that do or want to believe that it can make a difference are the ones that are going to join your movement. The third thing is, if you want to create a movement, you need to choose a nemesis. What you're against is as important as what you're for. And it doesn't have to be an individual. It can be a concept. It can be a societal structure. It can be the way business is currently done, any of that. It's much easier to rally people towards a movement that's against an enemy. By the way, this can be used for good or bad and for good or evil, unfortunately. But think about the famous 1984 Apple ad that introduced the Macintosh. That ad didn't talk about how great the Mac was. It was structured around a nemesis, which was IBM. The whole centerpiece of the ad is throwing the thing into the screen and taking down IBM and Big Brother and all of that. That is designed to attract a movement. And it's not a coincidence that Macintosh and Apple became very much a movement that was way more than just a product that people like. The fourth thing to do if you want to create a movement is to create a shared language. So inside jokes are really powerful and language is really powerful. Every movement has its own unique communication that becomes a way to identify and connect with other members. An easy way to see this is if you look at artists or people, anyone that has like a rabid fan base, the most passionate fan bases have a shared language. So Baba Booey means something to Howard Stern fans. Lady Gaga's fans aren't just fans, they're her little monsters. So I think, how can you create a shared language 
around what you're doing that people can rally around and start using. And then the fifth thing here, if you want to build a movement, is you want to make it simple for supporters to spread the word and identify themselves as part of the movement. How can you make that easier? Dickie Bush and Nicholas Cole, who are the guys behind Ship 30 for 30, have done an amazing job at this, right? In multiple ways. So it's part of how Ship 30 has grown to be so big. Participants use the ship emoji in their profiles to identify as part of the movement. And other people see that and want to be a part of it and also go, what's the ship in your thing? And even the structure of their thing, part of the genius of Ship 30 is that the people that are doing it have to post on social every day the things that they're writing. So those daily posts give the movement built-in promotion and virality. So it's interesting to think about how what, with you, what you do, how can you build in things that allow people that are on board with this employee branding movement, create ways that make sense for them to share and identify as such. So there you go. Five, those five things, if you, if you try to do those five things, you will be well on your way to building a successful movement. Amazing. Thank you. Cool. Any questions about any of that before we I'm jump ahead? Only hundreds, but that's... We've... Yeah, it's just that simple, right? Just do those five things. You'll exactly. be fine. Exactly. All right, let's get to your third question. What's the last thing you want to know? This probably might be the easy of the, all the questions, and that is, I live on LinkedIn. I have a Substack newsletter. I know a lot of people... We're in a similar boat. Maybe they have Instagram or Facebook, but are there any underutilized channels or tactics that you see for content creators to attract that audience, to get people excited, to get people inspired? Yes, there definitely are. And I love this question because I love the questions that force me to think about things that maybe I've thought about, but be like, well, wait, let me see what would I actually, you know, it's so then I was like, well, maybe this, but no, nah, that's not underutilized. You know, it underutilized is such a, a judgment call. And so there may be some things that like, oh, that seems obvious to me, but isn't to other people. But nonetheless, I came up with six, well, actually, before I get into that, so I want, I want to say this, actually. So what I actually think is there are underutilized channels and tactics, but the bigger thing I see is there's a ton of underutilized content. Most people don't get as much value as they should out of what they create because they make it, they post it, maybe they share it once or twice. And they move on. And so what I actually think is more so than channels or tactics, the biggest opportunity I see is that people should be getting more value out of the content that they create. And so I've done an entire skill session about how to do that. It's called the Content Maximizer. You can get it at joshspector.com slash sessions. So I won't go super deep into that, but I think just conceptually, it's important to understand that as opposed to, I'm going to talk about some tactics and channels here. But as opposed to like just jumping to the new thing, look at what you've already got and ask yourself, I wrote this really good blog post. I made this really good video. I appeared on this really good podcast. Have you really gotten everything that you could get out of that? And in almost all cases, the answer is no. I'm really good at repurposing stuff and maximizing value. And I still feel like I do a crappy job of it. So I think that's the first one. So, okay. So now let's get into the six most underutilized channels and tactics that I see for content creators at the moment. So number one is one-on-one -on -one conversations. There is exponentially more value to be unlocked from individual conversations than from talking to or at the masses and posting on social. These one-on-one -on -one conversations can happen in a million different ways. They could be DM conversations, they could be Zooms, they could be calls, they could be in person, they could be whatever, and they could be with a variety of different people for a variety of different reasons. But if you talk to one buyer, one subscriber, one client, one peer, you will be amazed how much you learn that then influences everything else that you're doing. 
conversations with five of your clients one-on-one will do more for you than a survey of all your clients or all your buyers. One-on-one conversations massively underutilized. The second underutilized channel and tactic may surprise people because a lot of people think that it's overused is newsletters. Lots of creators have newsletters, but the truth is every creator should have one. And for that matter, I actually believe every person should have one. And not because you have to get a million subscribers, but the forcing function of a newsletter, the forcing function of every week or every two weeks, you having to come up with something to share, even if it's a paragraph, even if it's one link to something, it is amazing how much you will learn. And then on top of that, you will attract an audience. You will establish yourself in a a space and some expertise. You'll put yourself in the middle of a community. It's the best way to, the most direct way to, to reach people. We are not in a newsletter bubble. The idea that like there's too many newsletters out there, that's not true. Everyone should have one. And so therefore, despite there being, it's seeming like there's newsletters everywhere, I think it's still underutilized. The third underutilized tactic that I want to share here is doing less. Everyone I meet is trying to do too much and they're trying to be in too many places. Guilty. And I include myself in that, despite the fact that I am constantly trying to do less. I still feel like I'm doing too much. Nothing will have a bigger impact on your success than doing less. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but I see it over and over again for myself, for other people. You will have a more successful social strategy if you use one platform than if you use five. I highly recommend that anytime you look at what you're doing and go, a question to ask yourself is, if I had to stop doing 25% of the things that I do, what would I stop doing? And try it for a week, try it for a month, try it for a couple months, whatever. You will be amazed how not only does it not hurt you, but everything else improves. So doing less, highly underutilized tactic. The fourth underutilized tactic is distribution. And what I mean by that is creators, by their nature, we like to create. So we're always like, let me make the next thing. Let me write the next blog post, do the next social post, whatever. But as a result, we become too focused on creation and not focused enough on the distribution of our creations. This goes into the sort of people are not getting the most value they could out of what they create. How do you get more value of it? You spend more time on distribution. The truth of the matter is most people probably spend 80% or more of their time, their content creation time on creating, maybe 20% on distribution. If you flip that, you would probably get much more out of it. The fifth underutilized tactic here is what I call packaging. So what this means is the way you present your content is as important as the content itself. Let's say that again, because people don't, people easily overlook this. The way you present your content is as important as the content itself. There are a million ways to package up your content to make it more interesting, more noteworthy, et cetera. Turn individual blog posts into a mini series. Suddenly it feels bigger, right? Start a recurring feature where every day you do this on Twitter or every day you do this on LinkedIn or whatever. Look for ways to package your ideas that are unique and compelling and that will make them more likely to get noticed and remembered. I've used this example before, but it's a really simple one. Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, on Twitter used to every morning have a good morning tweet and every night have a good night tweet. The tweets were just the same sort of random whatever stuff. There was nothing special about the tweets other than every morning he said good morning and every night he said good night. And he became known for that and it separated him from every other celebrity that was doing the typical whatever on Twitter. To the point that he wound up creating a good morning, good night book of just his good morning and good night tweets. No one was buying a book of just like, here's Lynn Manuel's tweets, but that packaging 
made it seem different. That packaging led to people replying every morning and saying, oh, good morning, Lynn. Good night, Lynn. But it's interesting because you work in employee in business employer branding. That's a branding play. Yeah. How do you package the things that you're doing to make them more interesting? And then the sixth one here, last but not least, underutilized tactic, which I think goes right along with packaging is unique formats. So don't do things the way most others do them. An unexpected format for your blog post, your tweets, your podcast, your videos, whatever, an unexpected format gives you a huge competitive advantage in the battle for attention. I, this is one of the things that I've done that has, I think, benefited me the most. It's not a coincidence that my newsletter is a one-paragraph newsletter and nobody was doing a one-paragraph newsletter when I did it. It's not a coincidence that my podcast features guests asking me three questions and not me interviewing other people. Literally, when I was going to start a podcast, my first thought was, you do what everybody does. I'll have guests on and then blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Everybody does that. I'm going to do something different that fits my goals and needs. It's not just different for different sake. I want to showcase my expertise. I want to keep it short and tight and get right into the, even though I'm way over my 10 minutes per, I want to keep it short and tight and not start with 20 minutes of tell me how you grew up. I want it to be actionable and tactical. So I create formats that help my work stand out, not fit in. And whatever you're going to create, and by the way, this goes for everything. This isn't just online, right? If you're making a presentation or a pitch or whatever, how can you make it unique? How can it not seem like every other person that comes in to pitch their PowerPoint? Do something different, be unique, a highly underutilized and super effective tactic. So those six tactics, one-on-one -on -one conversations, newsletters, doing less, distribution, packaging, and unique formats. All you have to do is master those six and you will be unstoppable. Okay, no problem. That easy. Any questions about any of that before we wrap, wrap up here? No, this, that I make, again, it makes so much sense. And honestly, I know I've heard some of those things from you before. Mm -hmm. The thing that always fascinates me is that it's, it's sometimes it is the seventh time you've heard it. And this, it goes, oh, the penny drops and it clicks. You're like, oh, that makes me think of doing it this way, which is what I needed. So no, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. That's awesome. And it's funny, like one of the reasons why I love getting these questions from people like you, and thank you, these were great questions, is it's exactly an example of what I'm talking about, about packaging. So those six underutilized things I have talked about in various ways all over the place. But your question gave me the prompt to package them up and go, what do I think is underutilized? Oh, and now it feels different, right? Now it goes for me sort of randomly saying things here and there and whatever to going, oh no, now it's a concise, nice package of these are the things. And by the way, this gets into sort of the repurposing of stuff that'll become a tweet and that'll be, it'll become a blog post and it'll become, and what will happen is I will see how people resonate with it and what will inevitably it will seep in and will get shared in my newsletter. And, and that repetition, it's funny, this is a side note, but I was never a comedian, but I was always a huge stand-up comedy fan. And then I worked in the comedy industry and produced shows. And what I have come to realize, not intentionally, but I, I now realize this is how it works for me. And I think for a lot of people is that the same way comedians hone bits over time, they have an idea, a few fragments of an idea. They go on stage, they present it, they see where the laughs are, they see what resonates. They're forever sort of honing it until they get to a point where it's like every word is specifically chosen and it's like, it's tight in its package. And what I've realized is I do the same thing. I am creating bits, even though it's not comedy. And, and that, that answer is now a bit. 
that on, on, I will say and use and write and, and whatever, and I'll be on someone else's show six months from now, a year from now, and they'll ask me some question and I'll be able to go, you know what? I think there's a lot of missed up. Someone will ask me what are missed opportunities? I'll be like, well, you know what? I think there's, there's a few here's, here's five or six of them. And what's fascinating, because again, this has happened for me already over and over again, is people will look at it and they'll go, just like they do a comic who thinks they think it's like the first time they've ever. It's funny. People that don't know comedy sometimes think that they just get up on stage and they're just riffing about whatever, right? People will see me on a podcast and they'll, they'll be like, oh, he's amazing how he's able to come up with this stuff. And it's no, I've been work, quote unquote, workshopping that for three years, right? And so I think everyone can do that and, and understanding that taking your ideas and your stuff. And that, that's also why, like I suggested to you, sitting down and going, why should someone choose, literally going, what are the reasons that someone should choose employee branding over some chat bot? That, that's going to become a quote unquote bit for you. Yeah. It's going to become a part of your sales pitch. It's going to become a talking point. It's going to become a whatever. And it's going to clarify and package up these things that you have that's going to help make them more more resonant and serve you in a bunch of different ways and even just help you clarify your own thinking on the matter. Cool. Well, James, this was awesome. Let people know where they can find you, where they can get more, all that stuff. Sure. I'm employerbrandlabs.com. That's my company. That's what I do. And then I live on LinkedIn. Like I literally live on LinkedIn. So James Ellis, it's slash the war for talent. That's the best way to find me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a loud mouth over there. About half the loud mouth there that you are here and stay that they say that non-pejoratively i say that with a lot of love and respect i love it i appreciate it it's funny someone the other day on twitter said i forget what the context was they said something about me and they were like i listened to half of his advice like it, it was complimentary but or like they either said i listened to half of it or i agree with half of it or i agree with him sometimes or something like that and i wrote back and i was like that's awesome like to me that's the way it should be the idea is not to me that's a that's a good sign I think you see a lot of people that blindly follow others. Yes. And it's now take what's good from them and throw away what's not. It's tough though. I've, I've done that myself. Like I felt, oh, yeah. that was a really, there are two guys who do a really interesting email podcast. And for four months, I just did what they said. And it's how you figure out how much of it works and how much of it doesn't yep. quite work for you. So it's, it's tough. It is such a, a process and a game to get at yeah. what matters. Yeah, exactly. So again, thank you, James. Thanks everyone for listening and watching. By the way, if you are watching on YouTube and haven't subscribed to my channel, what's the deal? Let, let's make that happen. Yeah, exactly. Hit that subscribe button there, 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 wherever it is. Get my newsletter for theinterested.com slash subscribe. If you have three awesome questions and would like to ask me on this podcast, it's basically free consulting and exposure to my audience. So I don't know why you wouldn't do it. Go to joshspector.com slash questions to submit your questions. And yeah, I think that's enough babbling out of me. Have a great week. I will see you next time.